Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is novelist Salman Rushdie, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2012 to share his memoir, Joseph Anton. He was joined in conversation by veteran radio host and author Michael Krasny. And now join Barbara Lane at the JCCSF as she introduces Salman Rushdie and Michael Krasny. Here's the New York Times book review on Salman Rushdie. Swift in Gulliver's Travels, Voltaire in Candide, Stern in Tristan Shandy, Salman Rushdie is very much a latter-day member of their company. Salman Rushdie is the author of 11 novels. The publication of his second novel, Midnight's Children, brought him international fame. A comic allegory of Indian history, it tells the story of 1,001 children born after India's Declaration of Independence, each of whom possesses a magical power. Midnight's Children not only won the Booker Prize for Fiction, it was also named the Booker of Bookers, acknowledging it as the best recipient as the Booker Prize for Fiction in the award's history. Salman Rushdie's other novels include The Moor's Last Sigh, The Ground Beneath Her Feet, Fury, and Shalimar the Clown, plus three works of nonfiction. It was the publication of Salman Rushdie's fourth novel, The Satanic Verses, that caused an international firestorm and caused the Orthodox Muslim Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran to issue a fatwa, a call to all obedient Muslims to assassinate Rushdie. The novel revolves around two Indian actors who struggle with religion, spirituality, and nationality. The Satanic Verses was banned and burned in many countries, and several people involved with its publication were injured and killed. After the death threat, Rushdie shunned publicity and went into hiding for many years, although he continued to write. Salman Rushdie's new memoir, Joseph Anton, tells the extraordinary story of how he was forced underground, moving from house to house with the constant presence of an armed police protection team. How do a writer and his family live with the threat of murder for more than nine years? In this remarkable memoir, Rushdie tells the story for the first time, the story of one of the crucial battles in our time for freedom of speech. Salman Rushdie appears tonight in conversation with Michael Krasny. Please welcome Salman Rushdie and Michael Krasny to the JCCSF. Well, thank you all for being here tonight, and uh, I should initially say that uh, Salman and I go back a long way. Uh, we realized that the first time I interviewed him was in 1986, when he had published a book called The Jaguar's Smile, and it's always a delight to talk to him. And to some extent, since the publication of the Satanic Verses, we've been talking in one way or another about this book. Um, in fact, you were talking a while ago about it in a context that I recall that summons to memory the fact that you felt 
this was a book you knew you were going to have to write, and yet to some extent you were delaying it, and then it kind of all came. So, like one of our favorite novels, The Adventures of Augie March, once you opened the valve, it all came out. Yeah. Isn't that pretty much the case? That's pretty much the case. So, I, you know, I did, it was a long time when I didn't want to write a memoir at all. Um, I mean, I came out of this, this tunnel, you know, and whenever it was, 10 years ago, and, and the last thing I wanted to do was to look back down the tunnel in order to write about it. I just wanted to slam the door and, and move on, and write novels and stories and the thing that I became a writer to do. But, but actually, I also knew that I would write about it one day. I used to joke to my friends that it would be my old age pension. <laughs> that, you know, that, that, you know, when I ran out of other stuff to write, I could always tell this story and it would pay for, you know, the hospital bills. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and, but then I, I don't know, there's, I just thought in the end I'm going to leave this to instinct and there's going to be a moment when a sort of writerly voice inside me is going to say it's time to do this. And, and that's, that's, that's more or less that's what happened. You know? but, as much as you believe in fiction and as ardently as you've been devoted to mm-hmm. the craft of fiction, this memoir had to be written to some extent in a way that provided a fictional guise for you. I mean, you had to detach yourself and it must have been, even he creates a character named... Joseph Anton, which was the name he used when he was um, essentially in hiding and, and living this life uh, under terror. He took the name because of his two favorite writers. In fact, I want to ask you about that. Um, Joseph Conrad and Anton Chekhov. Conrad, I know, because Conrad was the anthem of your life in many ways, that line of his. Yeah. But why Chekhov? Why Chekhov? Um, well, because I came to feel that I was stuck in a kind of Chekhovian melancholy isolation. You know, I thought, um, I thought about his three sisters yearning to be somewhere else, you know, yearning for this lost Moscow. Um, and I thought, that's me, you know. As it happens, I have three sisters. Um, <laughs> um, but in the play, they don't have a brother. <laughs> but they do now, you know. And that's, what I, oh, that's what I thought. Um, so I thought there was a reason for putting Conrad and Chekhov together. But there was also this thing that it just sounded, it sounded like a name that worked, you know, that somebody might have. And also, I have to say, I always wanted to write a book whose title was somebody's name. Mm. You know, David Copperfield, mm. you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Huckleberry Finn, you know, uh, uh-huh. Robinson Crusoe. Martin Chuzzlewit. Yeah, Jane Eyre. You know, I thought, you know, thought these are books. You know, they, they seem to have a kind of solidity, and they know what they are. Silas Marner, Daniel Deronda, Augie March, Oliver Twist. <laughs> I mean, you know, these are. I wanted one of those books, and so I ended up having one. And it turned out the name turned out to be me. You know, which was unexpected. Well, it is you, and yet it's it is, also is and is not. this and character that you can detach yourself from and write about in the third person as if it's a fictional character when well, it's really your memoir. Well, I really had this... I told myself that I wanted to write it like a novel. I wanted to write it with the attention to character and to language and form, etc., of a novel. And I thought about... You know, there are these, these books now which get called non-fiction novels. Um, Schindler's List, you know. Um, in Cold Blood, or The Right Stuff, books like this, uh, which use novelistic techniques to talk about true stories. And I thought, well, that's true, but they're not writing about themselves, those authors, they're writing about other people, 
you know, the executioner song, Mailer's mm-hmm. great book. Um, and I thought, how do I do it if it's, if it's me? How do I do it if it's autobiography and not somebody else's story? And that's where the third person thing helped. It was just a way of, you know, if you say I, then the I person in the book has a sort of different quality than all the he and she people in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and it just occupies a slightly different space in the text. And, and I thought, if, I, if, if the character with my name is just one of the many third-person people in the book, then it allows me to be more novelistic and actually more detached about myself, more objective about myself, in a way more critical of myself. And yet, I'm sure that writing this book created a lot of emotional pain at the same time that you had that distance of the third person. Well, some. I mean, I think one of the benefits of having waited 10 years is that it, didn't, it actually didn't cause as much emotional pain as you'd think. I think I'd actually really had waited and reflected on this for a long time. I, th- you know, I really had thought about this book for a very long time, and it was... And I think I just had enough distance from it that I could write it, you know, as people say, to reflect in, tra- in tranquility and then write it from that spirit. And, oh, yeah, there were days when, when I would notice at the end of the day that I was in a really bad mood mm. and, 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 and realise that it was because of what I'd been working on, not because of anything in my real life. Um, but no, it didn't upset me too much. I and mean, that was interesting, I thought. Um, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, one gets the feeling, as a, I'm talking as a reader now, that mm. the pain is palpable yeah. and the terror is. I mean, you, you make it vivid and you make it uh, graphic and, I mean, uh, certainly a testament to your writing, but also just um, I feel like I've been through what was, I mean, there are funny moments as well. And this is a man who has a really remarkably good and swift sense of humor, but there were moments as a reader where I felt I was in prison with you, because yeah. that's really what it was. In fact, yeah. it was worse than prison. Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted, you know, I wanted to show people what that felt like. There's an image in the book taken from an essay written by the Argentinian writer Borges, mm-hmm. where he talks about how you can't take a photograph of the Pampas in Argentina, because if you take a photograph, it just looks like a field. Mm-hmm. You know, the, way, the only way you can explain experience the truth of the Pampas is to travel. And then it just goes on and on and on and on, and it's always the same, and it's always the same, and it goes on and on, and it's everywhere, it stretches all around you, and it goes on and on and on. And so, because a photograph doesn't have the element of time, doesn't have duration, it can't capture that. Only duration can capture that. Mm. And, And for a long time, I felt that that was a kind of description of the situation I was in. I was just in this unending thing that just went on and on and on. And the only way to, to understand it was to understand it through the passage of time. You, know, you couldn't take a photograph of it. You couldn't just say, it's this. The point about what it was is that it was... For, I mean, you know, there, was a time, there were times when I thought the ending was going to be you know, very unpleasant and that, and that I wouldn't be in a position ever to write this book. Somebody else would have to write it. And, and uh, <laughs> didn't like that idea at all. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then almost as bad, really, was the feeling that there, there might not be an ending. You know, it might just endlessly continue. Um, and, and that would be, that was almost as appalling a thought. Well, there's a moment in the book where Paul Theroux says, you're at a funeral together. Yeah. You, you want to tell this story? Well, this was, yeah, we were, we were at Bruce Chatwin's memorial service. And it was actually the day of the fatwa. It was that day. Yes. 
And so it, we were all, you know, I mean, I certainly was in a very weird state of mind, but I thought I would go to Bruce's memorial service because he was my friend. And, you know. So we were all there, and, and Paul threw was sitting in the row behind me, and uh, he leaned forward, and in a slightly failed attempt at humor, uh, he said, I suppose we'll be here for you next week, so not. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the man who Paul Theroux considered his friend and then felt betrayed by V.S. Naipaul, the Nobel Prize winning writer, uh, when he was asked about the fatwa, said, this is the most severe form of literary criticism. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he, did. he did. And I think, and I, I, to be fair to, to Vidya Naipaul, I think he thought he was making a joke as well. You know, Obviously. But, yeah. but, but I mean, and, and, as you can see, it's a good joke. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there is humor in it, but there's a lot of pain as well. And, you know, I was struck by the things that inspired you and got you through. I mean, there are problems. You're very candid and open in your humanity about the difficulties in a couple of marriages, the desire to be a father to your children and how that was interfered with. And uh, that's, that's a lot of the pain. But, of course, it's also inspiring in many ways. And you're tough on yourself, very tough on yourself. Uh, and your humanity comes through. But there's, a, there's also a sense of your trying to communicate what inspired you and what enabled you, enabled you to endure it. Yeah. And I'm thinking about when you mentioned Samistat, you mentioned Dostoevsky, you mentioned Jean Genet. Yes. I mean, there were models for you in a sense. No, I mean, I did, you know, it seemed, it, I don't know, it, I hope it doesn't sound too grandiose and inflated to say this, but I, I, I did take strength from the history of literature. You know, I thought, I'm not, I'm not the first writer who found himself in a difficult situation, you know, and and many of those great writers went on and did amazing work. Um, you know, I thought of the poet Ovid being exiled by Augustus Caesar um, to a little little sort of flea-infested hellhole of the Black Sea, and spending the rest of his life, you know, writing letters begging to be allowed to go back to Rome, and never was, died there. Um, and yet, you know, wrote all this, all this stuff, wrote the Metamorphoses, etc. And then, and you know, the poetry of Ovid has outlasted the Roman Empire. And you continued um, to write. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, it was liberating. You, I think you first wrote Harun, didn't you? Wasn't that what kind of opened it up? That's for you? what brought me back to writing because there was there was a, certainly there was a moment after the moment which I came to call the moment that the excrement hit the ventilation system. <laughs> and, uh, uh, when I was really, I was really very off balance, and it's the only time in my life that my, that the thing I'd always wanted to do in my life, which is to be a writer, that my my belief in that was shaken, and and I, I thought, you know, how great it would be to not be a writer. Uh, you know, you'd be a bus conductor. That would be better, I thought. And, and the thing that got me out of that, that downward spiral uh, was the fact that I'd made a promise to my son, uh, who was then nine, and coming up for ten, and after all, this was happening to him too. You know? and, and he's a kid, and it was much harder for him to handle it. And I had made him this promise. And so I thought, well, I've got to keep it. And, and it was good because it made me sit down and, and write again. And uh, I mean, I've told this story. Shall I tell the, the, the jump story? No, it's a wonderful uh, story, yeah. No, this is, I mean, 
I wrote like three or four chapters of what became Harun in the Sea of Stories, and I thought I'd better check that he likes it, you know, um, not knowing what I would exactly do if he didn't like it, except wring his neck. You know? <laughs> anyway, I gave it to him to read, and he read these few chapters, and, and when I next saw him, he, he looked a little uneasy. So I, sa- I, said, I said, what do you think? Do you like it? And he said, yeah, yeah, Dad, I, I, I like it. And there was something in his voice. I said, well, what do you mean? Say, say something else. And he said, well, there are, you know, some people might not like it. <laughs> and, and I said, why? And he said, well, Dad, some people might be bored. <laughs> he, said, he said, you know, he said, not me, of course. You know, I'd read it. I like it. <laughs> some people might be bored. I said, Bored? <laughs> Why? And then he used this wonderful phrase. He said, he said, Dad, it doesn't have enough jump. And I thought, jump? And I knew exactly what he was saying. You know? And I said, I said, I can do jump. <laughs> I said, give me that back. You know? <laughs> I took it back and went and rewrote it. And showed it to him again some while later. And I said, now through clenched teeth. I said, well, what do you think of it now? <laughs> And he said, no, now it's fine. <laughs> and and it, was, it was, in many ways, the most useful and constructive literary criticism I ever got. Because, because it was so precise. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was saying, here's a problem. And, and as it happened, I thought I knew how to fix it and, and did. So now, it's, now it's, the version you now have is, is with added jump. <laughs> but it was important for me to write that book because... First of all, because it got me back into the business of being a writer. And, and, and then actually it was joyful to write. It was so very strange because I was in, in, really in many ways, in the worst moments of my life. And going into this world of this book and writing it was, the, was really the only form of joy available to me. You know? and, and I just rediscovered the joy of literature. Can I go from the joy to the other side just for a moment? Because yeah. you reminded me of a moment in your... Joseph Anton, when you write about Clarissa, your uh, first wife, mm. and going with your guards, who get wonderful tribute from you in this book. I mean, yeah. obviously the bond that you made and, and just the way they served you. And, but you're going by what you thought was their house, and the door was open. You well, no, it's was, much worse than that. It's much worse than that. I, I, I had made an agreement with, with Zafra and his mother that I would call every day at a certain time. Now, and remember, this is an age, there's no laptops, there's no email, there's no, there's no cell phones, there's no text messaging, there's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there's, you know, there's landline telephones you know, <laughs> and fax machines. And anyway, so I said, call me at, I'll call at seven every day. And I said, if for some reason you can't be there at seven, leave a message on the answering machine in my old house, which I couldn't go to, but there had an answering machine there, and I said, I can to use the newfangled word, interrogate it. You, know, you could call it and get the messages, in other words. Anyway, so on this particular day, I called at seven and there was nobody answered, nobody answered, and I checked the answering machine, there was no message. So I thought, you know, what? But, and then I went on calling, like every 10 or 15 minutes, and there went on being no answer. And I got increasingly concerned, because it was a school day, you know, that he was supposed to be at school, so why is he out so late, etc. I worried. And eventually I said this to the police who were with me, and, and they said, okay, we'll get a, 
you'll call, I wasn't in London at the time, I was in a sort of damp cottage in mid Wales in the rain. <laughs> Actually, that's tautological. I was in mid Wales. <laughs> it's not like an opening line for a novel. Actually. Exactly. Um, and anyway, so they said, we'll get a police, we'll call London, we'll get a police car to drive, by, drive, drive down the street, drive by the house. And so they did. And then I had, I mean, this worst sentence anybody ever said to me. They said, the front door is open and all the lights are on. You're listening to novelist Salman Rushdie, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2012 to discuss his memoir, Joseph Anton. He was joined in conversation by veteran radio host and author Michael Krasny on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. And I thought, well, the front door is open and all the lights are on and I'm, nobody's answering the phone. And, you know, you don't have to be a novelist for your imagination to begin to work at that point. And I, you know, I just... That was the, one, really, yeah. possibly the worst moment. The, and I mean, it, it was the one moment when I just completely fell apart. But I was sitting on the floor of this, this cottage, sort of in bad shape, and I was sort of manically dialing this number and nobody was answering it. And the police said, well, you understand, sir, that given the situation, we can't just ask... Uh, an officer just to walk in there. So he said, you'll have to give us an hour and we have to assemble an army, was the term they used. And, you know, so... And then I had a conversation with one of the police officers. I said, look, you know, you understand that if, if somebody's captured him and they want to trade him, you know, for me, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I don't get down, give a damn about you. I'm going to go. So you better just get used to that idea. And, and he said, no, you see, sir, that only happens in the movies. And he said, in real life, if they've been taken, they're probably already dead. And what you have to decide is if you want to die as well. An extraordinary thing to be, have somebody actually say to you when you're in like, the most worrying, terrifying moment of your life. Anyway, so this was all building up and getting worse. And I was dialing this number like a mad person. And suddenly, the phone's answered, and there's my son's voice. And he said, Dad... What's the matter, Dad? He says, there's a policeman at the door, and he says, there's 46 more on the way. (laughs) And and I mean, I didn't know whether to kill him or... or, Anyway, I said, said, where were you? And it turned out there'd been some event at school, some parents' evening, and they'd been delayed, and his mother had just forgotten to leave a message. And I said, well, what about the front door's open and all the lights are on? And he said, no. He said, Dad, we just came in, the door light went on, we opened the front door. Um, And the police car that had driven down the street had looked at the wrong house. So the whole thing was actually a mistake. Uh, But, I mean, thank God. You know, thank whatever there is instead of God. Um, Where are uh, you on that question now? Uh, (laughs) No, no, I'm where I always was. There ain't no such animal. (laughs) Well, I remember when when Christopher Hitchens uh, published his book... um, uh, God is not great. God is not great. You, you, your quip was um, just to get rid of the great. great. Yes. <laughs> God yes. is not. Yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Which is a great quip. But there was also um, a time, and one of I know, 
deeply embarrassing for you. I'm not trying to out you on this, but you no. write about it. Yeah. When, when you said, I'm embracing Islam. Yeah, well, it was a stupid mistake. But what happened, um, what happened was, this is actually, it's a kind of important passage of the book because it was the sort of bottom of the barrel, really. There was, and I think one of the interesting things, I kept a journal in these years. And if I, I went back, I hadn't really looked at that journal in, in a decade. No. And then I obviously had to go back and, and read whole, I mean, thousands of pages of it. And, and it became quite clear to me when looking at this period, this is a period about, roughly speaking, two years after the beginning of all this. It was sort of late 1990. And it became quite clear that the person writing the journal was not in good shape, mentally. You know, and and to, to put it mildly, in a state of great uh, depression. Uh, and also at that time, there was a lot of external pressure on me, which, which basically suggested uh, that that it was my fault that I needed I needed to be the one to do something about it. You know, I needed to, in some way, offer an olive branch or a compromise or an apology or a whatever. But you know, the, you broke it, you fix it. Was was the sort of attitude, and and a lot of British public opinion was moving in that direction. In fact, I think you say that those who were insisting you apologize uh, felt worse to you than the attack in some ways. Yeah, because I thought they ought to understand what was going on, but in many ways they didn't. Um, Anyway, so under all this pressure, I essentially allowed myself to be suckered into a meeting with a group of Muslim leaders who said that, you know, if we could come to some agreement, they would they would make sure that the, that the matter was resolved. They would issue statements and everybody would follow them. And, I mean, I, they probably were leading me into the trap on purpose. I don't think they ever intended to do any of that. Mm-hmm. But I was anxious to believe that that might happen. You know? and, and so I went along to this meeting and they gave me this piece of paper to sign. And I realized that the piece of paper contained a declaration of, of religious faith. And I thought, well, I mean, I don't have any, you know. Um, but, but in the state of mind I was in, I allowed myself to twist my mind around into signing it as a way of making peace. And immediately that I left that room, I knew that I'd made the stupidest mistake of my life. You know? and, and actually my, my body knew it before my mind because I, I threw up. Um, and, felt, and then everybody who was close to me got very angry with me. You know, my sister that I'm very close to my sister, who's one year younger than me, called me and, and just said, have you gone mad? And I thought, you know, maybe, yes, you know, maybe. Um, but it, it, so it was a very bad moment because I felt I'd betrayed myself in some way. Yeah. But you were brought up Muslim, too. I mean, no, no, but my family wasn't really... Your family was very secular, I know, but I mean, you were exposed to it at... Yeah, but I but I'd still would never have... I mean, not, none of us would have described ourselves as, as religious. You know? so, so it was a false description. And... And of course it didn't even work because they weren't intending to do anything except lure me into the trap. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't even effective. No. Um, but worse than that, it felt like a betrayal of myself. You know? And in retrospect though, I think not even just writing this book, but even at the time, I, I came to see it as a, as, a, as a pivotal moment, as a turning point, not just in, in this story, but sort of in my life. Mm. Because... The thing about hitting bottom is that then you know where the bottom is, you know, and then you think, I'm never going there again. And it just made me, it clarified something. I just thought, you know, the hell with this. 
I, I'm not going to compromise about things that shouldn't be compromised about. I'm not going to, enough with appeasing and apologizing and trying to explain myself and this and that, the hell with all that. You know, I mean, I know what this is about. I know what I'm supposed to be fighting for. I'm just going to do that. And if you don't like it, tough. And what you were fighting for really was free speech, but also allowing people to recognize, as you do in this book, how so much of this has perhaps very little to do really with religion. It has to do with exploitation of power. Yeah, it's, it was about power. Um, but I would think there was a thing that, you know, Hitchens said in, in something I read, which I had also been saying, like, without conferring, you know. We had both found ourselves saying the same thing, which is that in this battle, we found that everything we loved most was being attacked by everything we hated most. You know, so that on the one hand, tyranny, totalitarianism, fanaticism, violence, ignorance, etc. On the other side, you know, literature, the imagination, and this large, important thing called liberty. You know. um, and, and I remember thinking, well, you know, that I didn't, I didn't choose the fight. You know, the fight sort of chose me. Um, but having looked at it, I thought, well, that's the right fight. You know, and if you're going to be in a fight, that might as well be the fight you're in. Um, and then you might as well fight it. And that's, that's what I then was able to, to do because something just began. There's a, the chapter in the book which deals with this material uh, is called The Trap of Wanting to Be Loved. Yeah. Um, and I think I just had this idiot view at the beginning that I could sort of talk my way out of this. You know, that I could say, look, you made a mistake. <laughs> you know, you know, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. I'm a perfectly nice guy. And here's what I thought I was doing. And, you know, you've had it badly explained to you. So let me explain it to you properly. And, and now that you understand it, you can see there's nothing wrong with that at all. And, and you know, we could all shake hands and proceed. You know, and, and I really thought that in some way I could do that. Because I was a writer and I could write my way out of this. You know? and but also you thought you were maybe dealing perhaps with something rational here. Yeah, yeah. Well, or I, or I, or I persuaded myself yeah. that, that, that I was. And, and, and again, I just came at this moment, I came to this understanding that, you know, there are going to be people, someone, who don't like you. And as it happens... That's fine, because you don't like them either. <laughs> and, and that's just how it's going to be. Well, you make it clear in Joseph Anton who some of those people are. Um, Roald Dahl, uh, oh, Jean Le Carre, Cat the... Stevens. I mean, no, I mean, and, and, and you know, you've, yes. I think been, uh, the reviews, of course, have been uh, quite good about this. But in England, there, some of them would say, well, is Rusty settling scores and everything? And I thought to myself, no, he's just talking about people who behave badly. Yeah. Well, you know, the English will say what they say. Um, <laughs> you, 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 you can't stop the English being English. <laughs> it's their way. But, but, I mean, but the truth is that, yeah, I mean, I was saying what happened, you know. And, I mean, Cat Stevens, it's kind of sad because, I, you know, like everybody of my age, when I was at college, you know, I had a copy of Tea for the Tiller Man. <laughs> and, 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 you know all that Catch Bullet 4, all these things. I mean, I... You wrote a whole novel about that music of the 60s, really. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, there was a point where 
I was, I sort of liked Cat Stevens. And then there was a later point at which I didn't so much. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick anecdote, because uh, when, when the fatwa was on, uh, Cat Stevens came as a guest on my radio program, all in his robes and everything. Yeah. Um, and I have never, in all the years I've been on the air, agreed to stipulation that I couldn't ask certain questions or the certain questions. I mean, because mm-hmm. like you, I'm an ardent believer in freedom of speech. They said, you can't bring up the fatwa. The, the publicist told me that mm. and everything. And for the first time in my life, and the only time in my life, I said, okay, because I knew the first caller would bring up the fatwa. Yeah. And did. Yeah. 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 Which is what happened. Yeah. I was reading an article about your son, actually. Uh, we were Facebook friends, and, and he posted, uh, someone posted uh, an article about his son. And so I read it, and his son did him proud, talking about the fatwa and talking about how much he loved his father and what a wonderful father he was and how it was difficult. But if he had been older, it would have been that much more difficult because he was just nine, ten, and whatever. And he said, you know, it's part of me now. And I'm, in, in a way, he was saying it wasn't a very pleasant thing, obviously, for our family to go through, but it, it made me who I am. He did say that. It surprised me that he said that. Now, what about uh, you, though? I mean, I, I couldn't help thinking, having read that... Mm. Um, has it made you, I mean, you, you lost your 40s. You really lost that whole decade of yeah. your 40s. And yet, in many ways, I remember our mutual friend Christopher Hitchens writing an article in Vanity Fair saying, um, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me strong. That's a bunch of BS. Uh, yeah. But has this made you stronger? Well, I don't know. It's made me clearer, I think. That's what I'm so mm-hmm. saying about that episode. At the end of it, I just had a much clearer sense of, you know, if you're, if you're basically a, a comic, satiric kind of intelligence. It, it's much easier to know what you're against than what you're for. Because, you know, what satire is a way of taking targets and attacking them. So people are pompous or corrupt or whatever, you know, and you go for them. And, and, uh, and in this particular case, I thought it was quite easy to know what I was against. You know, somebody was trying to kill me, and I was against it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, if asked the question should writers be killed for what they write, my answer was no. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, 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 I, so I knew that. You know, but it also became very clear to me very early that if I was going to survive this and come through it in any kind of good shape, I had to have a very clear idea of what I was for. You know, what was this for? What, what made it worth it? What was it that you would actually put your life on the line for? Was there anything? Because if there wasn't, what are you fighting for? Just, you know, it's just a damn book. Get rid of it. Get on with your life. But I found I couldn't, that wasn't my point of view, you know. And so then I, I mean, the, we've been talking about the, the kind of conclusions I came to had, were that these values that I cared about above almost anything else, you know, were the things that were at stake and that I was going to try and defend them, you know. So you became president of Penn. Yeah, and that, that probably came as an organic... Uh, well, that was a way of giving back, you know, yeah. because, because Penn American Center had been fantastically supportive of me, mm-hmm. uh, starting with at the time of the fatwa when, when Susan Sontag was president. Yeah. Susan was a friend, but that wasn't it. Susan was also a lion, you know. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she marshaled the troops. She got everybody to stand up, even the ones who weren't that keen to stand up. <laughs> um, but there were some real heroes here, and Hitchens is one of them. Yeah. I mean, and, and Harold Pinter and Margaret Drabble, I mean, who really... Yeah. Did fact, a, lot. a lot of a lot of Brits still think that you uh, that the government was paying a lot of this uh, expense of uh, putting you in places and so. I know. Well, one of the, you see, everybody's read spy novels, 
And so everybody thinks that there are, that, that there are these things called government safe houses. You know, and, and, and government gives you these safe houses and they're probably pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and in them you're safe. <laughs> um, but but the truth was that, I mean, if there are such places, which there may be, because, you know, I've read spy novels too, um, I, I was never offered one of them. <laughs> um, I, I was told in the first place, I mean, I had a house. You know, I didn't need a safe house, I had a house. And I said, you know, why don't I just go home and you can protect me there? And they basically said that that wouldn't, be, wouldn't do because it would endanger the neighbors, and, and that the cost of protecting the street would be sort of prohibitive. So it's essentially an economic argument. You can't go home because it'll cost too much um, to, to look after you there. And, and then they, I was told that it was up to me to find the places, you know, to go. And I, meanwhile, of course, I was supposed to be invisible. Um, and this was not, again, no computers. You can't go online and rent a house, you know. Um, so this was, you know, invisible man rents house. I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to do. And this is where I think I want, one of the big themes in the book is, is how, how helpful my friends were. Um, I mean, they helped in, in a number of ways, sometimes by renting places that I could live in, sometimes by actually moving out of their own homes so that I could live in them. Uh, I mean, it was an extraordinary collective act of loyalty that went on for a decade. And, and during that time, nobody ever leaked one word. And this is, remember, this is the literary world. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, this is not, you know, the secret service. These are people who can't keep a secret to save their life. <laughs> you know? this, this, is, this is like gossip central. You know? And yet, in the middle of this world of talkative, gossiping people, nobody ever leaked a word for ten years. And it was just an extraordinary collective act. People, it was as if people really thought... Okay, this is actually serious and focus. That's not only a testament to how much they believed in the principles of free speech and in protecting free speech for writers. I think it's a testament to their attachment and their admiration for you. Well, it was a collective act of love, you know, and one of the strange things is that in that time when there was so much hatred around, the thing that I really take away from it is that collective act of love, Mm -hmm. you know, because because that's really what, what got me through. And, and the book, I think, you know, we've all kept this secret or all these secrets for 23 years. And, and nobody, even after, you know, it's been okay now for really for 10 years or more. And still, nobody said a thing. So, so um, it's been this, well, one of the pleasures of writing the book is finally to say, look at what all these people did. And to be able to say who they were and what they did. Um, and some of them were public, you know, like Christopher. Christopher was very fierce in the kind of political public arena. Others were more helpful in private, you know, in these various ways of trying to help me get through the, get through the days. And, and many of them were helpful, you know, emotionally, as kind of being a support system. Um, there's a phrase that I quote in the book, my friend uh, Bill Buford, American writer who was then living in London and editing Granter magazine. Afterwards, he became the literary editor of The New Yorker. Um, but at that time, he was in England, and he said this beautiful thing. He said, you know, he said, your friends are going to form an iron ring around you, and you're going to be able to live inside it. Mm-hmm. And that's really what they did. You know, they knew where I, I mean, many of them knew where I was living. They would come and see me. It made my life a little easier. And as I say, nobody ever said a word. 
and it was uh, extraordinary. It was extraordinary. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is novelist Salman Rushdie, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2012 to discuss his memoir, Joseph Anton. He was joined in conversation by veteran radio host and author Michael Krasny. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. And it was also extraordinary how you, who present yourself as very much a flawed human being, became this figure, Rushdie. I mean, yeah. almost iconic beyond belief. Yeah, uh, well, I always worried about that because I, I would always say I don't feel iconic. Mm. You know, I, don't, I, mean, I feel actual. <laughs> and, and I think one of the reasons for writing the book in the way that I... Partly the reason for writing the book in this kind of flaws and all portrait is that, I mean, it's more interesting, you know? I mean, it's a, my novelistic set says you have to, if you're going to make a character, make a real character, you know? And also, I think otherwise, it reads like an excuse, the book. You know, if, if the book says, you know, I was really great all the way, but other people not so much, you know, it, it doesn't read well, doesn't play well. And, but mostly what I thought was that there was this double falsification of me in those years, that on the one hand, there was a kind of demonization, you know, that I was this satanic person with probably horns and a tail, but certainly evil, you know. And on the other hand, there was this idealization of me as this kind of Statue of Liberty, Rushdie, you know. And I didn't feel like the Statue of Liberty either, you know. And I thought, I've got to, if I were to write a book, I can't, you know, I, obviously I don't, I don't those, both those people don't exist. And, and what I want to do is to say, look, it's just, a, it's just a human being. It's just somebody with all the weaknesses and sometimes strengths, the bad judgments, the good judgments, you know, the egotism, the courage, the weak, you know, the jumble that human beings are, um, trying to get through this, trying to get through this and do the best he can. And I thought, well, apart from anything else, that's the truth. But I also thought it was probably more interesting to read. Um, if the person at the centre of the story felt like a credible individual. You know? And that's what I mean about trying to write this book like a novel. I thought, you know, in a novel, you don't, I mean, unless it's a very bad novel, you don't just have good people and bad people. You know, you have people uh, who have all the complexities and problems people have. Although I know Martin Amos was just here and we had talked about uh, his new book, Lionel Lapso, and he said he had... He created such a bad villainous character that he had to create a good nephew yeah. to offset the bad character. But what comes through in this book, and it's very touching to me as a reader and poignant, is your full dimensional. Uh, I mean, for, for, Ian Forrester talked about flat characters and round characters. You made yourself a round character by creating Joseph Anton. Well, I, yeah, well, I, you know, it's, it's very odd because I didn't, I always hated having to use that name, I really loathed it and was very happy when the need for that pseudonym finally ended. And the reason I made it the title of the book was, was that I just thought it'll show people how weird it is, how weird those times were. You know, just imagine what it would mean to be asked to give up your name. Mm -hmm. And not just your name, but the ethnicity of your name. 
you know, don't choose an Indian name, they said, because it's too obvious. And so I thought, well, if I can't have the country I actually come from, I'll have this other country, which is literature. You know, and well, it's the country you've always been in exile in anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. And so out of that came, came Conrad and Chekhov. Yeah. Wonderful book, and I think we'll bring up the lights at this point and go to the audience if, if you have something you'd like. Thank you. If you have a question for Salman Rushdie, and I see one right here, and I'm coming to you. Thank you. I've always wanted to meet you personally since I first read the Satanic Verses. My question is, uh, as you mentioned, Borges, uh, he also was uh, kind of uh, excluded from the Argentinian public. Uh, he was demoted from being director of the National Library to be inspector of hen houses. I wonder if it's behind every famous or well-known or great author, uh, the idea of being, becoming famous by virtue of attacking the system. Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think there, that is, that there, there's one kind of writer that is, if you like, adversarial like that. I think with Borges it wasn't exactly attacking the system, is that he was uh, sometimes politically identified with the, with the right wing, and I think that was something that, that, that um, caused him some problems. It's probably why he never won the Nobel Prize. Um, but no, I think there are many great writers who have not been adversarial in that way, really. But, um, but I think literature itself is in some way uh, the reason, I think, why literature and, and power often find themselves at odds with each other is that they are both, both writers and politicians try to offer visions of the world, you know, that, uh, and, uh, and, and to say, you know, it's like this. And, and those those two visions of the world, the visions of the man of power and the visions of the artist, often conflict. I mean, writers would say it's because politicians tell lies. <laughs> and maybe not just writers would say that. Um, I know it's a shocking thing to suggest. Um, um, and, and so it's often been one of these paradoxes that writers of fiction, which after all is an untruth, find themselves in the position of bearing witness to the truth, whereas the people who are supposed to be telling the truth you know, are lying their heads off. And I think that there's somewhere in there this, this, this idea of clashing visions of, of how things are is a part of the explanation for why writers and, and politicians are so often at odds. You know, there's, a, there's a wonderful sentence in, um, in Italo Calvino's novel If on a Winter's Night a Traveller, where one of the characters says that you can always tell how seriously a culture takes literature by the size of the apparatus they set up to repress it. <laughs> you know? um, and, you know, according to that principle, the Soviet Union, of course, valued literature very highly. Um, and, and the United States, not so much. You know, which, which, which I suspect sounds like the truth to me. <laughs> um, is there a fatwa fatigue now? I know no one has a problem creating a ring of, of you know, protection around you after you, write, after you wrote Midnight's Children, but 
What about now with this filmmaker who wrote, you know, produced this absolute horror? By the way, excuse me, let me just put a plug in. Midnight Children has been made into a movie. I think it's done, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, And it's it's very exciting. It's going to be released in the spring. Um, And and also, just to speak on behalf of my novel, that wasn't the novel The Fast was about. No, no, I I understand that completely, of course, but but we love you from that. And then you you wrote this next book, and we're all protective of you. But what about people who write less than art? And we still, now it's sort of, even me, I'm thinking, you know, protect this guy and the next guy. Well, I'm afraid the battle is never ending. And you're right, it's easier to protect or defend writers when you like what they write. It just is, it's human nature. But it's, but it's very important not to confine the defense to good writers, you know, to good filmmakers, because, you know, crappy filmmakers have the right not to be killed as well. Yes. What happened after nine years? Uh, how you were allowed to go on with your life? Did Ayatollah Khamenei f- forgive you? No, he was dead. Uh, I should point out that one of us is dead. <laughs> um, um, no, well, it was a gradual... And the answer is it wasn't like throwing a switch. You know, it was, there was a gradual process. And, and one of the things I've, I've been saying in, in these weeks since the book came out is that... One of the ways in which I managed to regain, in part, uh, a normal life for at least some of the year uh, was because the United States allowed me to come here and to, and to do that, to live simply, you know, privately and to make my own decisions and not be stuck inside this kind of security bubble. And so I would come for initially for like 10 days or two weeks, etc., and eventually ended up coming for two months or three months a year and being able to live here, live a normal life, you know. Um, and that was incredibly exhilarating at the time and was, you can imagine, felt invaluable to me. And, and I think one of the reasons why I ended up settling in New York and making a life here was because this was the country where I was able to, to do that, to gradually regain liberty. And the other thing that happened was that gradually we were able to when I say we, I mean me and some of my friends and with the help of a couple of human rights organizations, we were able to slowly mount a campaign to try and persuade various Western governments to, to, um, to be supportive and to put pressure on the Iranians to, to back down. And, and the two really crucial things were, first, the election of President Clinton, um, who became very supportive, and that stiffened the spine of a number of European allies. And the other was the election of the Blair government in England, and in particular the appointment of Robin Cook as foreign secretary, who was passionate to get this thing fixed. And I think there suddenly there was this energy in the British government, and with that energy and with the support of the American administration, that's in the end what brought the Iranians to the negotiating table and got them to agree to to end the threats. So that's, it happened over a period of time. Um, and even after that, you know, the British uh, intelligence services uh, didn't entirely believe the Iranians, you know. They said, they said, if you don't mind, we won't just believe them if you don't mind, sir. 
No, <laughs> we're just going to check. And it took them, actually, that, that process of checking took about two years um, after the agreement between the governments. Um, and it was only after about two years that they said that they had reason to believe that, you know, that the dogs had been called off and that, and that the threat level had dropped much lower. So it, you know, it went on over a period of time. It wasn't, as I say, it was a, a gradual process, not a sudden one. But even before that, I can recall being in Toronto for a convention of the Modern Language Association and mm. Margaret Atwood, whom I was going to see near the University of Toronto, brought you to the public attention. It was one of those first times when you yeah. literally came out. And it, yeah. was, and it was courageous. I mean, at that time, uh, the pressure upon you was great. Yeah. I mean, just when you, when you kind of connect the dots here, yeah. it was overwhelming. I mean, the reception you had, but it was also very daring. Well, I mean, I think that was one of the things that, that I felt was necessary to do in order to try and, try and sort of rally this kind of support. I had to show up in places, you know. And it was all very difficult because it wasn't that easy to get on a plane for a start. You know, there were a lot of airlines that were reluctant to accept me as a passenger in those days. And then there were some which, which for reasons of real principle, said that, of course, they would do it. You know? and, and it's interesting which those were. You want know? to name names? Hmm? You want to name names? Well, I tell you which they weren't. <laughs> they were not American. There wasn't a single U.S. carrier uh, in those days that would, that would do it. But um, Air Canada, Air France, Scandinavian Airlines... You know, the countries which had a human rights record. Um, it was, interestingly, their airlines which had the same view. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting how much was revealed, you know. I mean, I often thought that, well, you know, any novelist knows that crisis reveals character. You know, and that you, you put people in a condition of crisis, you find out what they're like. You shipwreck them or whatever. And, and, and this, was, this was a sort of shipwreck. And, and I think it, everybody who was involved in it, you know, I think it did a lot to reveal, whether it was an airline or an individual, it did something to reveal their character. And actually, I have to tell you the story about my son again, my older son's offer, who you mentioned, did this interview today. Um, he, when he was at high school, was very, you know, obviously very exercised about all this stuff. And the, and the, the head of British Airways um, came to address his school the sixth form, whatever. And he just took him on. And he said how disgraceful it was that British Airways wouldn't carry his dad. And you just went for him in the middle of this sort of public thing. And there's the head of British Airways going on. <laughs> and, and actually got him to change his mind. You know? <laughs> the next question is up here to your left. Yeah. In today's uh, New Yorker Online, there's an interview with David Remnick. He interviewed the president of Iran, and he asked about you. And here's what uh, Ahmadinejad said. Salman Rushdie, where is he now, he said. There is no news of him. Is he in the United States? If he is in the U.S., you shouldn't broadcast that for his own safety. Yeah. Well, it just shows how badly informed he is. I guess, I guess he hasn't been reading the papers the last few weeks. <laughs> you know, or With all watch, the social media, you would think... You know, he hasn't yeah. been watching John Stewart or... Yeah. <laughs> or Bill Maher. Or Bill Maher or, yeah. you know, or the Today Show. What does he do with his time? 
So yeah, I saw that. I saw that, and it made me, it, it made me feel sad for him that he'd been missing out on the Charlie Rose show and <laughs> all this stuff. Where is he? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you working on for your next book? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that because um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I have. I have some bits and pieces that I think might be something, but I'm not... I mean, for the next couple of months, I'm doing this. Um, but also, there's some other stuff happening. Which is one is, well, Michael mentioned there's a film of Midnight's Children coming out, so, um, so there's that to, to, to get launched as well. Anyway, so I'm that... I mean, it's a science fiction series, but I have to say, there's no aliens in it. There's no monsters. Nobody blows up the White House. Um, you know, nobody destroys New York City. All those things that happen every summer in Will Smith movies. <laughs> um, somebody said that, you know, destroying New York is L.A.'s way of showing it cares. <laughs> Thanks to Michael Crasby. Thank you. Thanks to Salman Rushdie. Thanks Thank you. to you. Good night. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was novelist Salman Rushdie, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2012 to discuss his memoir, Joseph Anton. He was joined in conversation by veteran radio host and author Michael Krasny. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program, our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zor. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.